0: And uh, today I get the honor of continuing in Romans together. If you've been with us, we have been in this series since end of January. And we've had a lot of weeks of bad news. Because that's what Romans is. It lays out, because this is what we need before we get to the good news. We need the bad news. And so we had week after week after week after week of not just bad news, but of exploring in depth the bad news of the gospel, which all led up to Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and then without even a period, it go- and it goes into the good news, and we finally reach where Paul reaches the good news, where we had laid out every week the good news that comes in light of the bad news. The bad news is all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all our situation is desperate and hopeless, and there's no way for us to get out. But then the good news comes Jesus Christ. For all have been justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Jesus Christ. So we've been praising him all morning. Can we just praise him for the redemption that came through Jesus Christ? Your situation, my situation, is no longer hopeless or desperate. We're not left to ourselves, dead in our sins and trespasses. We say yes to Christ, and we are rescued and redeemed in him. And if you were here last week, uh, Phil, one of the main points that Pastor Phil brought to us was that Christ is the ultimate demonstration Of this, of God's love, of God's grace, of God's mercy, of his justice. And that Christ is the ultimate demonstration of that. And we experienced some of that ultimate demonstration as we walked through communion together and celebrated that. And I don't know if you were here, but like, if you were here, I I don't know if it felt like this to you, it felt like this to me. Like, we could just cap the series here, right? Like, I mean, call it done. Jesus, take us home, mountaintop, celebrating all Jesus has done for us. Let's celebrate his his death for us, his rescue of us, and let's call this thing done, right? But God didn't. We're still here. And and Paul didn't call it done because he keeps going after chapter 3, right? That's where we're going to go this morning. He keeps going into chapter 4. The Spirit, and it's not just Paul that keeps going because he thought he had more to say. The Spirit of God led Paul to continue writing because there was more that we needed to hear. And as much as Christ was the ultimate demonstration of God's justice and love and power and mercy for us, we need more demonstration. Because I don't know about you, we we walked out of the room last week after that mountaintop experience and life came at you, didn't it? You you ran into some situations where where that that love and that trust and the, the, the faith In God's love and trust and belief and the trust in his love and mercy for us was tested. And so that's where Paul comes and says, I'm going to demonstrate this further. So that's where we're going to go this morning. In the beginning of chapter 4, if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn and open there. Or on your devices, we're going to be in the first 12 verses of chapter 4. If you would, just before we uh, read, would you bow your heads with me and let's pray. Lord God, you are sovereign, and you are present, and we thank you for that this morning. The God that we praised in song, who gives us the very breath in our lungs, that we praise you back with, God, you are present right now, and you are not done working this morning. For as we open your word, you promise that it does not return void. And so you have a work to do in us as we go through this word. And Lord, we can, I, I, I confess sometimes I read your word and I just gloss over it and I take in information and I move on and the, the box is checked. But I don't realize that you have a, a transformation to work in me as I receive your word. And apply its truth to my life. So God, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds this morning to lean into the truth that you have for us. That we would, yes, celebrate your rescue of us, Jesus. But God, I pray that in these moments together, that you would help us to understand that rescue just a little bit deeper. Just a little bit more so that we might walk in the the abundant life, the full life that you came for us to have, Jesus. God, as I look back over my life, as we look back over our lives this week, there were moments where we might have tasted that. And there were moments that our experience fell far short of abundant life. And that's not on you, that's on us. So God, I, I pray that you would wash us from those moments of doubt, those moments of disbelief, and that you would draw us back to our full confidence in your redemption of us. Lord, have your way in our hearts and minds this morning. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 So we are going to read Romans chapter 4, verse 1. I'm going to be in the ESV this morning. I'll talk about why a little bit later that we're using that translation. But the first 12 verses, it says this. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God accounts righteousness apart from works. This is what David says back in the Psalms. He says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now, is this this blessing then only for the circumcised? He's asking, is this only for the Jewish person who has obeyed the law of God? Or is it also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was accounted? And he's going into a timeline here. When was Abraham accounted as righteousness? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but it was before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that, the righteous would be count- so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. So, Paul here is offering us another demonstration. Last week he offered Christ as the ultimate demonstration of God's love, mercy and justice. Now he offers a new demonstration. The demonstration is Abraham. And it's a demonstration. What is he demonstrating? He, he's demonstrating what he talked about in chapter three. If we back up a few verses before this, chapter three, verse 28, it says this, "For we maintain that a person is justified by faith, apart." from the works of the law. And if you've been around church for uh, some of your life, or a lot of your life, you've heard this phrase before, justified by faith. It's a very important doctrine of the church. And as I say the word doctrine, some of your eyes just glaze over right now. Because we think doctrine and we think, well, it's a heady thought that it has nothing to do with our actual real lives. But let me tell you, that's not the truth. Doctrine has every... What we believe... Is vastly important, and it's important because it has to do with our daily lives. See, see it's kind of like this. I, I think we view doctrine sometimes the way my kids view math. I, I like math. I've loved math. For a long time, I was like, man, maybe I missed my call, and I should have been a math teacher. And then I woke up one day, and I was a math teacher. Just not to a lot of kids. I only have three students, my three kids. And so, so they're a homeschool, and I, I am the math teacher, and... By the grace of God, and uh, in spite of the faults of their teacher, they're actually all pretty good at math. And, and they actually all like math pretty well. Like, I teach them a concept, and they get the concept, and they do the problems, and they like all that. There's one thing they don't like about math. This is consistent for all three of them. They don't like word problems. Anybody remember word problems? Like, give me the concept, Right? And I know how to do it. I know how to add, subtract, and multiply. Give me the numbers. I know how it works. And then then let's just check it off and move on. Right? But I don't let them check it off and move on. I make them do the word problems. Why? Because this isn't about numbers. This is about life. The numbers mean something, right? And so they get to these word problems, and they got to figure out sales tax, and how far it took somebody to travel to Seattle, and they don't want to do these, but I want them to do them. Why? Because this demonstrates that these numbers actually have a meaning for our real life. So then they, they suck it up and they do, the math, they do the word problems. But you know what I can't get any of them to do? You know what they, when they come to a word problem, they say, okay, yeah, I get it. The numbers mean something and they want to just write the answer. And I tell them every time, that's not the way to do a a word problem. I need to see you do the work first. I need you to see you write the problem first. They said, but I can do it in my head. Yeah, but I need to know that you know how to do it. Do you know why? Because I love that you can do 57 times 3 in your head. But eventually, listen, the numbers are going to get bigger. The numbers are gonna get more complex. The problems are gonna get far more complicated. And if you don't know how to put it down on paper and do the work, if you don't know how to apply these numbers to your life, you're not gonna be able to do the problems when they get more complex. And you're not gonna know that this math works too when the problems get bigger. So listen, we hear a phrase like justified by faith, and I think we can do that with justified by faith. Like my kids do with the word problems, we can say, yeah, I get it, I'm justified by faith and nothing else. But then we don't take the time to sit down and meditate and think about and listen to what does that really mean for my life. Because the num- listen, the numbers mean something. And it can sound real good when we're in these four walls, but in a few minutes, you are going to walk out of here, and the problems are going to get far more complex in your life. Amen? And the truth that sounds real good right now, we better know that this actually works. This truth that we're going to talk about this morning actually works for our real life complexities that we're going to meet out there. For the lies that the world tries to tell us. For the lies that we think we can believe. And if the math doesn't work, let's go find something else. But can I tell you something? The math works. The math works. That's what, that's what Paul is going to show us this morning. This actually works for our practical lives. That's actually why he goes to, back to Abraham. He goes back to Abraham to tell, before he goes into what this doctrine is of faith, justification by faith, he goes back to Abraham, why? Because he wants to tell us that justified by faith is an eternal doctrine. That this is an eternal doctrine. That Paul is saying, I don't, didn't just make this stuff up. I, I'm not pulling this out of thin air, this is not something new. What I'm going to say is true for us, he says was true for Abraham too. And, and we do this sometimes too. I've heard people do this too because we're, we're New Covenant people. We're New Testament people, amen? Like Christ came and this is the covenant that we live under. We live under New Covenant. And that's true. But then they say, well, why do, why do I even need bother reading the Old Testament? Like that's Old Covenant stuff. I don't need to mess with that. But, but listen to me. Yeah, the Old Covenant was law. But it didn't work. Not because there was a problem with the covenant that God made. There was a problem with the people that he made it with. The law, as Paul has said, as he's going to say again and again and again, the law can't justify anybody. It doesn't work. But listen, the truth is the same. The God who made that covenant is the same. And so the truth that was true is true for us was still true for Abraham too. Do you know back under the old covenant, they weren't justified by works? Because it didn't work. They couldn't be justified. The only way they were justified is the same way we are, by grace through faith. So Paul's saying, like, I'm not... Making up a new idea here. What was true for us is true for them. Because this is an eternal doctrine. The Old Testament affirms what's always been true about who God is and how we relate to him. That's why it's worthwhile to go back and read the Old Testament. Because it affirms that God is still the same and he's still working and relating to his people in the same way. By grace. And by his goodness. This is an eternal doctrine. Doctrine. And so he uses this illustration of Abraham. He says, What then shall we say about Abraham? What was gained by him, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So here's what we find here justified by faith is a crucial distinction. He says, Abraham was either justified by his works or he was justified because he believed God. It's either works or it's faith. And this is a crucial distinction. Because they would have said, Paul would have, was saying to them, You are justified by faith, not works. And they say, Oh, but what about Abraham? He says, Okay, let's talk about Abraham. Because they believed, you know how, why they believed Abraham was justified before God? Because of his works. You go back to rabbinical writings in those days, rabbinical traditions, and they said things like this. We find that Abraham, our father, had performed the whole law before it was given. So Abraham didn't have the law, but they think he walked in perfectness before God, even without the law. They said Abraham was perfect in all of his deeds with the Lord, and they thought that's why Abraham was made right before God. So this is a crucial distinction. Either it's works or it's faith. It's not both. In fact, this is what Paul goes on to say. He says, um, he, he says in verse uh, 4, he says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as gift, but as his due. Like if you get something, you either get it for one of two reasons. Either you've worked for it and you've earned it, or it's a gift. It's not both. That's where this crucial distinction comes in. It's either works or it's grace. It's not both. That's why he says in chapter 3, we are justif- a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now, to the one w- who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his, as his due. Um, and to the one who does not work, he's not talking about the one who's lazy. He's talking about the one who isn't working for their salvation. Either somebody works for their salvation, and if that's true, God owes them something. Does God owe anybody anything? No. Or, the one who does not work for his salvation, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. See, it's either works or it's faith. It's either his due or grace. It's either God owes us, or he's given it all freely as a gift. So, so this isn't something Paul just says here. He says it in, uh, if we can go to the next slide, Galatians 2.16. I don't think I have control, so just uh, try to keep up with me. Um, Galatians 2.16. We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ. There it is. It's either works or it's faith. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ. That we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. And here it is again in Ephesians 2. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Listen, this is a crucial distinction. It's a crucial distinction for Paul. And it's always been a crucial distinction for the church. We say that we're Protestants. And sometimes we don't know what that means. We throw around these churchy words. What does it mean that we're Protestants? It means we're following the tradition of people who found this doctrine and several other doctrines crucial. Like this makes all the difference. Is it faith or is it works? So back in the 1500s, the Roman Catholic Church had uh, sought to follow They had uh, followed Jesus. They had followed God, and they had sought to follow him through Scripture. But by the 1500s, the church had strayed in some ways. Do you know things aren't right just because the church says it? Do you know things up here that I say aren't right just because I say them? So don't take, it, don't take my word for it. You need to test it against Scripture. You need to test it against the Word of God. And in the 1500s, there were some people who had had enough, and they started protesting what the church was actually saying. They started protesting, and so they became Protestants. And what came out of that was five doctrines. Hang with me now. We're doing the math, right? We're looking at the concept, and we're doing the math. So you've got to lean in and learn the concept, and then we'll see how the math works. So back in the 1500s, There were five distinctives that came out of this. This is the Protestant Reformation. They finally looked at the Roman Catholic Church and said, we've had enough, you're going the wrong way, and we need some course correction here. And so you'll hear this referred to as the five solas. The first one was sola scriptura. Scripture alone is our authority. See, the church had come along and said, well, the Pope has divine authority. And church tradition has defined authority. Just as much, they put it equal with Scripture, and they came back and said, no, Scripture alone is our authority. We affirm that today. They came and said, sola gratia. I don't know if I'm saying these right. They they go by the Latin, by the way. Sola means alone. And the other word is the Latin word. I'm just going to take a stab at it, and you Latin scholars can correct me. Sola gratia. Saved by grace alone. That... It is by God's goodness and power that we are saved and not by our own goodness and power. The third one is sola fide. That's the one we're focusing on today. Salvation is by faith alone. It is by faith, not works. That's the crucial distinction. The other two were solus Christus. Salvation is in Christ alone. Not by any other name under heaven. There is no other name under heaven and earth by which someone might be saved, but by the name of Jesus Christ alone. Do you see that these distinctives don't just set Protestants apart from the Roman Catholic Church? They set true Christianity apart from every other religion that there is. And the final one was Soli de Gloria, for the glory of God. Alone, that life is to be lived not to please our church leaders, not to please ourselves, but for the glory of God alone. Let all that we do be done for God's glory alone. And so these were the distinctives of the Protestant church. And that's what we, uh, that's the tradition that we follow and these beliefs that we follow. These are distinctives not just for them 400 years ago, this is a crucial distinction for us today. And the one we're focusing on today, sola fide, by faith alone. It was so important that Martin Luther, one of those reformers, he said this, the article, this is the article, by faith alone, this is the article with which and by which the church stands. See, if this is not true, if it is not by faith alone, then it's not good news. It is by faith not work. So what does that mean for us? Where, where does this math come to play in our regular lives? Well, this comes down to this, that justified by faith is a vital decision. Justified by faith is a vital decision. See, Paul looks back at Abraham, and he says, this is what Scripture says. It says that Scripture says that, by, that Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And you know what? It can be easy to understand why those Jewish people thought Abraham was justified by works. Because he did a lot of great things. He did a lot of things that were steps, we would even call them dramatic steps of faith that he did. God called him out of a land that he lived in. He called him out of his culture, out of his people, away from his family, away from worshiping false gods. Everything that Abraham knew about his life in that moment, God said, I want you to step out of that and come with me, and I'm not going to tell you where yet, but to a land I'm going to show you. Imagine that incredible step of faith to step out of everything he knew into everything he didn't know, but God told him to go to. And do you know what Abraham did? He went. But that's not not when Scripture tells us that he was justified by faith. And, And do you know what else Abraham did? Abraham, at one point, God told him to sacrifice his one son, his only son, the son that had been promised to him, to take him up a mountain and offer him on an altar. And do you know what Abraham did? He went. He went and took his only son, his precious son, and he tied him up and he put him on the altar. And he got so far as to raise the knife. He went until God stopped him. But do you know that's not when Abraham was, said, that scripture says that he was justified by faith. And, and do you know what Abraham did another point? God told him to be circumcised. God told him to take to a knife to his own body. And if you're going to follow me, this is the sign I want to give you that you're going to follow me to do this to your own body. And do you know what Abraham did? He went and was circumcised. What a step of faith. Like if that was the cost, men. if that was the Abraham was 99 years old when he took this step. If that was the cost, would we take it? But do you know that's not when the Bible says that he was justified? It says it in Genesis 15. Here's what what it says. Here's where Abraham is at. Abraham is talking to God and he says, "Oh Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. You promised me a kid and he hasn't come. And my heir is going, to give me a, is going to be a servant of mine. He says, behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household is going to be my heir. He says, God, you promised this, and it's not happening. You see, Abraham comes to this place, and he's at the end of himself. His strength isn't enough. His ability isn't enough. His control isn't enough. Everything he sees and his circumstances in front of him, they aren't playing out the way he thought they would, the way God said they would. And he's starting to wonder, maybe my future, maybe my life is going to be so much less than God promised. And it's in that moment of desperation, it's in that moment when Abraham is at the end of himself, that it says this, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir your very own son shall be your heir abraham listen that's not the way it's going to play out your servant isn't going to be your heir and he brought him outside and he said look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them then he said to him so shall your offspring be and here's where it says it and he believed the lord and counted it to him as and the lord counted it to him as righteousness think about that what just happened If if we made a movie of Abraham's life, you know when we would want Abraham to be justified is when he walked on out of that land and the music would swell and he makes the brave choice. We would want it to happen when he's about to sacrifice his own son. Well, that's finally the step of faith that made Abraham justified before God. But do you know when that step actually took place? In this moment where on the outside, it doesn't look like anything happens. God takes him outside and shows him the stars And on the outside, nothing actually changes. But on the inside, scripture says that his entire world flipped upside down. That spiritually, everything changed because in that moment, Abraham made a vital decision. He made a vital decision to transfer his trust. From his own strength, from his own circumstances, from everything he could see, from everything he thought he knew, and how everything should play out in his life, he thought. And he transferred his trust onto this God who said, I am going to make this impossible promise to you, and I am going to fill it. Do you see, faith is always this. It's this vital decision to trust the impossible promise Of God. To trust the impossible promise of God, and on the outside, it doesn't even matter if anything changes. Yes, that faith will show itself proven in our life. There are things that will come after that step of faith, that shift in, that transfer of trust. There, our lives are going to be different in such a way that it shows. But when we come to transfer our trust, it is through the work of God alone, and no work of our own. It's a vital decision. You know what's more impossible than this promise to Abraham? What's more impossible to this than this promise to Abraham is that God would take sinners who have racked up such a debt, whose brokenness goes deeper than they've ever known, whose debt is far higher than, than they could ever conceive of, that he would take the unjust and he would actually justify them. Think about this. Your sin is far, we've, we've explored this for ever since the beginning of Romans, how our sin runs far deeper than we even know, than we even consider, how every single part of us is broken. Every single part of us is tainted and darkened by sin. And that that touches every single one of us all the way down to our core. That we are completely and totally depraved. That we are sin before a holy God. And that our debt is high and the bill is going to come due. And then God makes an impossible promise. That he's going to pay the debt. Like Phil said last week, the judge comes off after he declares us guilty. He steps down from the bench, and then he pays our debt. And Christ comes, and he zeroes out our account. And what happens in that moment, as we make that vital decision, as we transfer our trust after our own ability to make ourselves holy, out of our own ability to come before God and say, you know what? You can count me righteous because I'm better off than the next guy. When we transfer our trust off of ourselves and onto him, do you know what follows? Justified by faith is a firm declaration. Here's what it says all the way through this passage. It says this again and again. Abraham believed God and it was counted as righteousness. His faith counted as righteousness. God counts righteousness. Faith was counted to Abraham so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. That's talking about us. Now, this word counted can be translated a couple different ways. Some versions, your NIV translates it credited. But I, but I wanted to use the ESV because I think we misunderstand that word. Credit. What does credit mean nowadays? Well, you've got a credit card. It means I can buy anything I want with money I don't have. I can buy anything I want and I'm good for today, but tomorrow the bill is going to come due. I'm going to owe big time. And eventually, if I can't do enough, if I can't pay it off, then this credit isn't going to be very good. And my credit's going to be sacked. But the word here is not that kind of a word. See, see I had this Aunt Muriel uh, when I was growing up. My great aunt, she was my grandmother's sister. And she was born with hydrocephalus. She was born with water on the brain. And the doctors gave her four years to live. She's going to die by the age of four. She'll never walk. And her parents chose not to believe that. They chose to pray instead and put their faith in God. And she didn't die at four. And she did learn to walk. She was 12 years old when she learned to walk. And she lived into her 60s. With this condition, and it affected her cognitively, it affected her physically. That condition, when you have it, your brain swells, your head uh, is bigger than a normal size. And yet, for the most part, she was able to live a fairly normal life. She was able to have her own bank account, even. She was the funniest person, too. Like, you play games with her, she was joyful, and she cheated to beat the band. You wanted to feel sorry for her, but you couldn't because she cheated every time. She'd distract you and then steal your cards and But you know with this condition, she would have a, she got her own bank account and she would go to pay her bills, and you know, she would she would write checks and pay her bills and it worked out great until it didn't. And one of her nephews went to do her finances one time, and you know what they discovered? Is she just kept writing checks. And they couldn't get through to her that no, you only have so much money in the bank. You only have so much money in the bank. And she would say, well, of course I have more because I have more checks in my checkbook. And so she would just keep writing checks and they would bounce and then they would come due. And folks, I think a lot of us, we we sit in church and we hear that we're justified by faith. And we think our account is something like that. Yeah, I've got a few checks for today. But eventually they're going to come due. Eventually they're going to come bounce. And we come up with the insecurities of our week, of all the messages of the world that the world is going to tell us tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And we think there's not enough in our account to carry that. And even though we started by grace, we think we need to finish through works, right? Paul said something about that. You started with grace. You started by the power of the Spirit. That's the way you finish. You finish. This word that he uses, counted as righteousness, this is what one commentator said, it's grounded in reality. Do you know the actual reality of your life right now if you are in Christ is the incredible debt of your sin. That astronomical payment that was needed was paid in full and your account balance is zeroed out. Now is that good news? Amen. But, but do you know what? That's not enough. It's not enough. Like, if I just stand up here and say your account is zeroed out, all your debt's paid off, that's great. Except your account balance is still zero. You're, you're still at nothing. And, and how are you going to get that... Ab- Account balance up. Here's where we land. After we make this vital decision in Christ, Christ paid off our debt, praise God, account zeroed out, and then we think we've got to put some works into that account. We've got to build up that righteousness. We've got to somehow, some way, prove to God that we earned the right for the way he justified us. That we earned the right for this debt to paid off. That's not the way it works, folks. This word counted, It's grounded in reality. But but what's counted? Righteousness. Do you know what this means? This means it's not just that your debt is paid in full. It's not just that your account balance went to zero. But then your account balance shot up, not with debt, but with righteousness. The very righteousness, listen to me, the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. How righteous was Jesus Christ? I, I mean, was, could his account balance get any higher in righteousness? Did he do one thing wrong to take away from that account balance of righteousness? He didn't do one thing. His balance was full, fully, completely righteous before the living God. Let me tell you something impossible. That one who was fully, completely righteous before the living God was made to be sin. He took all of our sin on him, Paul says, so that we might become what? Righteousness to God. The actual reality, listen to me, the actual reality of your account balance today is fully and completely righteous before God. You say, what about what I did last night? Well, if you are in Jesus Christ, your account balance is righteous. Yeah, yeah. we can, we can talk about how God isn't pleased with your sin. Sure, but can I tell you something? God is fully and completely pleased with you. Because the work that was needed for your acceptance before God was completely and fully finished at the cross. In Christ, in Christ, we who were depraved sinners, who had a debt so high, the debt was not only paid off, but we were counted Righteous. See, some of us think we hear we are clothed with Christ, right? And we think that that means God takes us lowly, depraved, fully sinful human beings, and He says, "Listen, I'm going to give you this cloth of Jesus Christ, and I'm going to cover up your mess so that I can't see the mess anymore, and all I can see is Jesus Christ." And though your sins be like scarlet, I'm going to throw a blanket over you. That's not what it says. Though your sins be like scarlet, I'm going to give you a disguise, disguise so that all I see is Jesus Christ. It's not what it says. Though your, skins, though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be washed white as snow. You are, are you in Christ? Listen to me. You are righteous before God. So have you made that vital decision? Have you made that vital decision to transfer your trust from your own works from your own life, from your own abilities, to Christ's fully, freely given gift of grace of himself at the cross. Because then you in your identity are righteous before God. And then justification by faith becomes a daily demonstration. Uh, it's a firm declaration that we are righteous fully before God, but then it becomes a daily demonstration. So Paul pointed back to Abraham and he says, look, he's a demonstration of this. Was Abraham perfect after Genesis 15? No. Do you know what happens in the very next passage, the very next story about Abraham? You know what he does? He goes and sleeps with his servant. Abraham wasn't perfect after this, but it didn't affect his account balance. Do you hear me? It didn't affect the reality of his righteousness before God because his righteousness was not by works. It was by faith alone. And he becomes a daily demonstration of this. We think we mess up and we've undone it all. We think, yeah, we come to these moments, we submit our whole lives to God. Yes, I'm saved by faith, and we, then we think tomorrow we screw it up with our mistakes. But we are counted as righteousness. Abraham was counted as righteousness as if his bank account balance was full. So are you if you were in Jesus Christ. If you said, made that vital decision. But gosh, we need to do the math on this. Because we're going to walk out of here and you're going to hear messages and you're going to tell your messages, self-messages, that tell yourself over and over and over again how inadequate you are. How disqualified you are? I remember Pastor Jeff saying one time, he wakes up, goes to bed every night feeling like he is not enough. Feeling like everything he's done, everything he's accomplished that day is not enough. And I could resonate so much in my own soul because there was a season of my life where every night I went to bed and I took stock of everything that happened in the day. Everything I accomplished in the day and it was never enough it's never enough. How about you? We walk around this with this sense that God is constantly disappointed with us. And he would just be more pleased with us if we prayed more, and if we read our Bible more, and if we served more, and if we loved more, and if our motivations weren't mixed. And if we finally got this thing right, if we could finally follow Jesus on our own, then God would be pleased with us. Folks, that's not how it works. We can never do enough. That's why we needed his rescue. This is where we do the math. When these messages of shame come up, we do the math and say, no, Scripture says I am accepted, that I am counted righteous before a holy God, and there is nothing that can undo that, and there is nothing I need to do to earn that. I want you to imagine yourself as the perfect disciple of Jesus Christ. Doing all you should, thinking all you should, motivations pure. Do you know if you ever achieved that, he would not be any more pleased with you at that moment than he is right now? Can you let that sink in? That this week when you mess up, he is not displeased with you. He might be displeased with your sin. He says, child, I've got a better way. Oh, son, daughter. You're chasing after empty wells. You're going after something that won't fill your thirst. I'm the one who fills your thirst. Come to me. Oh, but he is fully pleased with you. In Jesus Christ. Can we tell that message to our shame? We hear that verse from Revelation, right? Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone opens the door... Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to walk in and I'm going to sit down and I'm going to eat with him and he with me. Thank God that's beautiful. And we think that's for unbelievers, right? Do you know he doesn't say that to unbelievers? He's talking to the church. He's talking to the church. He says, you think you can do this on your own? You think you can do life like this on your own? You think that you began by grace and you're going to finish it with works? He says, you don't, you don't know, it's, it's never enough. You think you don't need anything, but you're naked and poor and desperate for me. You will always be desperate for me. But I'm standing yet again, just like I was that first time when he made that vital decision. I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. And if anyone comes in, if anyone opens the door, I'm going to come in and I sit down and I'm going to eat with them, not to shame them, Not to list out all your wrongs. Not with a look of judgment on my face. Here's what Brennan Manning writes. He says, if Jesus appeared at your dining room table tonight, if you opened that door again tonight. I know you opened it before. If you're in Jesus Christ, you opened it that one time. Listen, if you opened it today, and he appeared at your dining room table tonight with knowledge of everything you are and are not, total comprehension of your life story, and every skeleton hidden in your closet. If he laid out the real real state of your present discipleship with the hidden agenda, the mixed motives, and the dark desires buried in your psyche, you would experience, if he walked in right now and sat down to dinner with you, here's what you would experience. His acceptance and complete forgiveness. But we don't trust that. So many of us When we really come face to face with our own brokenness, we think we got to stop and clean ourselves up before we come to God. How many times do you not pray because you've messed up? Your account is fully and freely righteous. And God tells you to come boldly into his throne so that you might have grace to help in time of need. He wants you to come into your need. To come in your need. You will always be desperate for him. But your account is righteousness. See, this is where we can get honest. We try to hide our own brokenness. We try to hide our screw-ups from each other. This is why he quotes David in the psalm. says, blessed is the man whose the Lord's sin does not count against him. And you know what David goes on to say? He says, my bones withered. I was convicted of my sin. If you read Psalm 32 all the way through, he talks about... How his bones were wasted away. He was groaning all day long. His guilt was heavy upon him. His strength was dried up. You know what he was free to do? You know what he did then? He stopped hiding. I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And he forgave the iniquity of my sin. And the Lord did not count his sin against him. We can get honest enough to stop hiding because there's nothing to hide anymore when our account balances are righteous, righteousness full up to the top. This means we can keep short accounts. We came to communion last week, and, and Phil encouraged us. Pastor Phil encouraged us listen, if you bring your offering to the table, if there's anything between you and somebody else, we can feel, go now and be reconciled. We can feel. Like we need to hide that stuff and pretend we're okay so that we can come before God. Do you know what this means now is we don't have to hide anything. I used to come before God and I used to come to God with 90% of me. I think I had to hide that last 10%, that last 5% because he wouldn't be pleased with that. Do you know I found the very parts of myself that I tried to hide from Jesus, those are the parts he's most interested in rooting out. Those are the parts he's most interested in seeking out. He says, no, that, that you're you're trying to cover up, that that you're trying to hide, that that you're ashamed of, bring to me. I came to wash that away too. And now you can live freely and fully. You can keep short accounts. And it means then ultimately, do you know that when our accounts are declared righteous, God then just doesn't leave us the same. You say, yeah, this is great. My account's declared righteous. It means what I do, I can't disearn that. But I don't want to keep messing up, right? If you understand the grace and freedom and fullness of the love of God in your life, you want to be changed. Do you know what he then does? He changes you. Bit by bit, moment by moment, not all at once you don't live perfectly, but over the long haul, he begins enabling us by the power of his spirit to actually live and walk in that righteousness that he already credits to our account. This is why Abraham could years later walk up a mountain and trust God that much with his own son, because he had walked in the footsteps of faith. See, I don't want you walking out of here hearing that this message of acceptance means you just stay the same the rest of your life. That would be half the gospel. See, when we come to Jesus Christ, our account balances become full of righteousness. And then he transforms our lives so that our outsides begin to match our insides. I can't wait for the day when that's fully done. But do you know if you're in Jesus Christ, he's already gotten started? And this is why we don't want to walk out of here with the message that acceptance is all that's needed, and that's what we get in Jesus. And that's some of the ways we sell the gospel short. So maybe some of you watched the Super Bowl a couple weeks ago. Anybody watch the Super Bowl? Man, I I have never lost more sleep over a game I cared less about. But at least it was an interesting game. It wasn't a blowout. But you know, maybe you heard one of the controversies that came out of the Super Bowl. It wasn't about the game itself. It was about commercials, right? There was some commercials that were put on from this campaign that says, he gets us. And and there was this ad, and it it showed a policeman washing the feet of a gang member. And it showed family members washing each other's feet. It showed neighbors of different races and different kinds washing each other's feet. And it ended with a priest washing the feet of somebody who was apparently a transgender person. It said, he gets us. He doesn't come with hate. He gets us. And you can watch that off the cuff and think, well, that's, that's a fairly decent message, right? I, I, I mean, Jesus doesn't come at us with hate. He ate with sinners. He he doesn't, like, we can approach him in the depths of our depravity because the only fix is him. And he actually doesn't even wait to approach us. He comes to us. Praise God for that. Sure, he gets us. But that's only half the gospel. How hopeless is that if he just gets us just to leave us the same? If all that Jesus does is get us, he is no different than most of the people in the world. Because most of us are, yeah, you're okay. Despite what you do, that's not who you are. We separate the sinner from the sin. People in the world can do that. But that's only half the gospel. See, he doesn't just get us. He does more. He doesn't just make our account balances full of righteousness. He actually transforms our lives so that we begin to walk in that righteousness. And so I'm really grateful that somebody went and remade that ad. For it to actually say who our Jesus is, that he doesn't just get us, he does so much more. Take a look at this. Such were some of you. We come to Jesus desperate. Desperate. Because that's what we always are. We come to Jesus all fully sin. Every bit of us, down to the last part. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that comes by Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Would you stand to your feet and let's worship our Savior who rescues and restores us, one more time.